Shadow Talk, in which we'll be discussing the ongoing Russia and Ukraine war and highlight the geopolitical and cyber developments that you need to know about. As always, I'm happy to be joined by my colleagues Rory and Stefano. How's it going, chaps? Hey, yeah, good to be back. How was your weekend? I can't complain. It's pretty good, pretty chilled out. How about you, Stefano? Yeah, all good here as well. Thank you very much. Uh, Weekend was good. Visiting another island here in the Canaries Island. So yeah, can't complain at all. Yeah, we're still all very jealous of you. (laughs) It was good. Like I disconnected from the news, didn't watch anything. Always turn my back to the television when the news were on. And it's good. Refreshing. I think that's very smart. Uh, mm-hmm. advice for anyone listening right now just to take those chances to disconnect if you do do get a period yeah really really agree with that one um so as we're entering the the 12th day of the conflict uh, and just to highlight that we're recording at 13:30 GMT on Monday the 7th of March um our last podcast on this topic was published on Wednesday the 2nd so obviously a lot has has happened in in this time and perhaps best to start by having a brief recap of what's occurred in the last few days So over the weekend, there's been a continuation of fighting in the regions of Luhansk and Donetsk in the Donbass, in the south above the Crimea and surrounding regions, and also north of Kyiv. There's also intensified fightings and shelling near a nuclear plant in Zaporizhia, and I've absolutely mispronounced that, so please do do, uh, accept my apology on that one, um, in southern Ukraine, uh, and the nuclear plant has since been taken control by Russian forces. Uh, there had initially been some serious concerns surrounding the safety of the plant following several fires that were brought upon by attacks, but these fears do uh, seem to have subsided in the, the coming days. Um, oil prices have also soared to $139 per barrel after the US uh, stated that they were in active discussions to ban Russian crude oil imports. Um, elsewhere, several commonly used services have announced plans to withdraw from the Russian market. So in the financial world, this has included MasterCard, Visa and PayPal. Whilst outside of financial services, Ford, Volkswagen and BMW have decided to withdraw from their Russian operations, which has coincided with moves from Microsoft, Airbnb, um, FedEx and several other companies in suspending operations in Russia since the invasion. Uh, Russia has also stated that it would open humanitarian corridors in several Ukrainian cities, including Kyiv and Maripol, despite its armed forces continuing to attack in some areas. And another round of talks between Russia and Ukraine is due today, um, according to Ukrainian officials. However, it does appear that Russian President Vladimir Putin has stated that the conflict would only stop if Ukraine um, stopped fighting and, and that Russia's demands were met. So perhaps unlikely that we'll see too much progress there. Um, but moving on to our discussion between the three of us today and starting with a pretty open ended question. But generally, you know, how do you think the conflict has gone for uh, Vladimir Putin? And what realistic objectives do you think that he can set, given how this conflict has started? Well, I've I've said this before, um, and I'll probably say it again in this pod, this war is not going the way Putin wants. It doesn't mean that we know the outcome, because we don't. But the victory that Putin probably envisaged before he uh, issued his invasion orders is drastically different to what we're seeing now. The Russians have had their noses bloodied pretty pretty significantly across Ukraine uh, despite some victories it's not going the way he wanted long term we don't know yet but short term with the support that Ukraine is receiving from uh, its allies in the west and uh, across the globe 
it's 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 getting its chances to fight back. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think, like, based on what we observed in the first days of the conflict, uh, Putin has very like highly likely uh, misjudged both the way this war was going to go and the response uh, he would receive from Western allies of Ukraine. And yeah, it's really complicated, of course, to see what realistic objectives uh, Russia can achieve in the long term. I think it's really important to notice that if the conflict remains limited to Russia against Ukraine, the difference between the two armies is is significant and it will be um, uh, it, it will cause like a great difference in the in the long term but at the end we have to see what the objectives are and how to achieve them like even if ukraine was to be invaded like completely what would he be left with like we're talking that of a country that is resisting that is like attracting the interest and the and the appreciation of the world in resisting against an invasion. So it will not be easy, like even if at some point Russia will totally invade Ukraine. Go on, Rory. I can see you've uh, you've come off mute. <laughs> oh, yeah, I've amused myself. Yeah, <laughs> I. You know, there's a history, isn't there, of Western nations uh, throwing money at uh, Russian forces or those willing to oppose Russian forces. Obviously, with the Soviet war in Afghanistan being the, the primary example of that. And we start, you know, you can see those parallels slightly different, obviously, because Ukraine has a, a funded and trained military that's, that has, a, you know, a centralized command structure that, you know, wasn't present in Afghanistan really for a long period during that conflict. But it's 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 looking it's looking really serious, obviously, and it doesn't look to be getting any better, which is probably the primary thing to think about. And you know, there are messages of support across the globe and the money's coming in and the arms coming in and the medicine and the humanitarian aid is, you know, flowing in, but it's we're only, what, 12 days in? Yeah, just 12 days. 12 is nothing. Just yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's so dynamic. And it's also important to note that all these, you know, when you hear about these discussions happening between delegations from the Russian and Ukrainian governments, it doesn't necessarily mean that things are going to be resolved quickly despite those conversations being had. You know, Russia seems to be absolutely steadfast in its requests or its, you know, conditions or in requests for Ukraine to be demilitarized, you know, for Donetsk and Luhansk to be recognized as independent states and for what it sees as Ukraine to be denazified, which is just... A ridiculous nonsense. statement. Yeah, yeah it's, it's absolutely nonsensical. So these, com- the, you know, these dialogues will continue, uh, but I don't, I don't, I don't think they'll be fruitful. You know, we've seen ceasefires being broken. You know, we've, we've seen some pretty, pretty horrible things happening over the weekend. Mm-hmm. Uh, civilian casualties are increasing, and I think as the cities continue to hold out, that's going to increase too. Unfortunately, I just want to echo what you guys were saying. You know, I think it's gone extremely poorly from from a military perspective from from Putin um i think they've just dramatically miscalculated on on several fronts um you know dramatically underestimated the resolve and the capability of the ukrainian military and the ukrainian people um you know i i don't think they perhaps perceived the uh, the impact of sanctions that it would have on their economy which has obviously been very very dramatic um and i think the narrative that putin had set for for the reasons why he started this conflict so you know, this, this kind of narrative around, you know, Ukraine isn't a country, you know, it's run by so, so-called Nazis who are, are puppets to the West. 
um, and we're just saving the Ukrainian people from this regime. I think that's just fallen apart in the first couple of weeks of this conflict. And um, it was interesting that you were talking about, you know, the conditions that Russia had set Ukraine during these peace talks. I see today that um, three conditions that they, they have made were um, Ukraine couldn't join EU or NATO, which is kind of you know, as predicted. Um, it would be to recognize that Crimea would be part of Russia and that Luhansk and Donetsk would be independent, um, uh, independent viewed states. Um, but also there was interestingly no suggestion of military disarmament, which, you know, at the start of the conflict, that was the, one of the main things that Putin had alluded to. You know, we were going in to demilitarize Ukraine. So the fact that that wasn't mentioned as part of these peace talks, I wonder whether that in a really roundabout way does represent some sort of progress. What do you think? I think it's too early to say, unfortunately. I, I have, you know, olive branches or I guess olive branches are the right word, but, you know, concessions or leniencies will, you know, will come in diplomatic talks. Whether that demonstrates that Russian negotiators are feeling the pinch, I'm, I'm not so sure. I think there's probably a recognition here that the Ukrainian military is not what they thought it was going to be. You know, Absolutely. since since 2014, the, the funding and training of the Ukrainian military, especially its special operations forces in particular, has been notable. You can find reports of that. There's pictures, there's articles talking about, you know, the build-up of Ukraine's military prior to Russia's invasion. You know, it's a precedent here. Whether we're going to see more positive dialogue, though, I'm not, I'm not sure. Yeah, I agree with Rory. I think it's quite too early to say whether these demands or conditions, however we want to call them, are for real and what they intend to do. At the end of the day, I'm thinking like even if those conditions were to be agreed on and Ukraine agrees to leave the territories or to Russia or independent and agrees not to join NATO or EU, even if they had a military capability at that point, that wouldn't be like a, a capability of like an independent and sovereign state. Uh, that wouldn't be the same military capability that Ukraine has had now to defend against foreign invasions. It would be totally different, and it would be a state that would not be sovereign, uh, which is not really a state based on political science, really. You're absolutely right. They would be in this weird position of, you know, they're stuck. They still would be stuck between Russia, but not able to to meet its own destiny and decide upon their own destiny in, in joining EU or NATO if they would so choose. Um, yeah, I, I don't think that the, the Ukrainian delegation would necessarily look at that as a, a positive um, development. Um, you know, certainly with Crimea, you know, this was something that was was annexed from Ukraine in 2014. I don't see um, how they could really accept that as, okay, well, we're just going to um, go forward and, and view that as part of Russia. I just don't see that as being an acceptable scenario for, for the Ukrainian uh, delegation, really. In terms of PR as well, Zelensky is just Putting an absolute masterclass. Definitely. Definitely. Publicly, he, you know, he's coming across as such a strong leader. And, you know, there's, you know, there's consensus there. He's in constant communication with his very powerful allies, um, which I'm sure frustrates the Kremlin to no end. Yeah, definitely. Especially because, like, you know, every war at the end is like a battle for public opinion, especially like in these times. And we've always seen Russia as one of the greatest actors in this in this field. And seeing Ukraine, yeah, what Zelensky is doing too is just like it's really strong, it's really powerful. And yeah, we, we may say that some lessons have been learned from Western states in a way in the past years to deal with that. 
because uh, like the playbook that we've seen in action is really different to what we observe, for example, in the elections in the US in 2016 or in France in 2017, where Western states really suffered the information warfare that was attributed in some instances to Russia. Interesting you were talking about the, the battleground, you know, of kind of public discourse and that information warfare. Um, I'll just move us on, you know, interestingly, while we're on this topic, because one development that we have seen in the last week is a, a request from Ukraine to cut Russia off from core parts of the Internet, um, which was rejected by the nonprofit group that actually oversees the um, Internet's domain name system. So namely ICANN and the, the CEO for ICANN stated that the group have, have got to maintain neutrality and act in support of the global Internet. And several other commentators have warned that granting Ukraine's request would otherwise harm Russian civilians and have sort of limited impact on Russian um, government and, and the Russian military and kind of fail to achieve its, its goal of countering propaganda that we are seeing. Um, and we also have seen reports that the, the Russian government has officially uh, blocked Facebook and, and continues to, to restrict other social media like Twitter as well from tens of millions of users uh, in the country. So the question I want to pose to you is, you know, what sort of developments do you think will happen with regards to internet connectivity and, and censorship as the conflict actually continues? Well, I think that first is like really important. Well, for me, at least, it's really sad to see, you know, news outlets being banned on both sides of this conflict, really. Um, it's really, I think, guaranteeing plurality of information it's, it's necessary uh, at every time, like even during this time. I know this may be a little bit controversial, but like I still think that having the ability to choose between what to read and where to get your information from is like, it's like a right that cannot be put on pause during conflict. And this goes both ways. And, and of course, like what, what is happening right now, again, like we already talked about this, but what who ends up most hurt by this, of course, is the civilian population uh, not being able to choose where to get the information for, being banned from getting certain perspectives. So, yeah, I just think it's sad. And I get the principle of why both sides are doing it. But at the end of the day, the people are the ones going to suffer most from this. There's a, there's a larger risk here as well, isn't there? It's the same with sanctions and you know, reduced access to services and, and consumables that Russians had previously enjoyed is that there's a risk, you know, that there's a risk of uh, giving the Kremlin a chance to counter this and play into their propaganda. There's a risk there. Um, but these these decisions arguably have to be made. You, you could definitely make the case for that. Russia has proven itself capable of cutting itself off from the wider internet. In 2019, it tested our units. China is another country that, that has demonstrably shown that a nation state is capable of having its own kind of firewall i guess we mentioned yeah yeah the great firewall yeah and there there is a there is a risk of that happening you know and that's realistically possible now i'd say um and you could definitely see that being spun against the west you know you, you can't access facebook now because of ukrainian nazis or whatever nonsense you know could come out in terms of propaganda but whether we'll see that actually happen again is it's unsure it would be a pretty serious step in terms of um, 
technological developments, I would say, though. Absolutely. I um, I think we're all in agreement that mass censorship is clearly a very, very bad thing um, and not something that we want to see rolled out in Russia or elsewhere. Um, I think, definitely think we're all in agreement there. I did see that um, the reports of, of kind of thousands being detained in Russia for, for protests so far, which does also coincide with a, a really chilling new law in Russia stating that protests have could could face 15 years in jail for potentially spreading fake news about the conflict, you know, which really is a, an escalation in, in what they're doing with regards to controlling the narrative. And of course, it's Russia, it's Russian authorities that decide what fake news is as well, which is why they're so dangerous, because it's just, you can choose how to enforce it, right, which is why it's so scary for protesters. Brave, really, people going out into the streets in Russian cities and demonstrating against the war. Incredibly brave. Absolutely. And I guess, um, you know, also that's, you know, what we need to discuss today is, uh, you know, what, what are, what are individual groups doing to kind of counter that that censorship or the efforts at censorship by the Russian state and um, one thing we have seen is the the hacking collective anonymous um, hacking into Russian streaming services um, Russian TV channels so once I've got names here are channel one and, and Moscow 24 to actually broadcast footage from Ukraine um, and this morning you know several other Russian TV stations were displaying live footage that was taken from the Ukraine uh, conflict um, and this has been referred to by by many commentators as you know one of the biggest hacktivist operations that they've ever seen um, so clearly hacktivism has has obviously, you know, previously been thought as kind of a declining attack vector, uh, but has, you know, greatly risen in significance during this conflict. Um, what sort of impact do you think that uh, anonymous and, and associated groups can have on the conflict or the, the wider threat landscape going forward? Well, the, the power of anonymous is that it can mobilize en masse. There's no, you know, there's no centralized structure or leadership. Um, and because of that, it's very fluid. And, it, you know, you, could, you, could, you can conduct an operation and just declare it on behalf of anonymous and the world will see it as being conducted by anonymous and that that's the value of groups like these and although hacktivism if you say chris has declined it's always been and we've always said this haven't we it's always been dependent on largely political events and as there seems to be an absolute consensus against the war in ukraine unsurprisingly i think hacktivists have taken up arms um, for those that are interested, by the way, NetBlocks uh, does some really good coverage of this. They, they provide a lot of graphs of showing internet connectivity in places like Russia and Ukraine and certain websites as well, which is really interesting. It was very active at the start of the invasion when it was showing that, you know, a ta TAS agency was going down or uh, Mil.ru was down as well, uh, I believe, in the, in the early days of the invasion, which is interesting. So although we have seen, as you said, these you know, fairly, I, I would assume, fairly sophisticated attacks on larger mobile networks and so on, or more uh, digital stuff, uh, DDoS and site defacement and general like website disruption is still very effective. And it's still a very popular tool because, you know, as we know, you can access DDoS, tool, DDoS tooling relatively easily online and it can, it can be far and forget in a lot of ways. Absolutely. Um, you know, I would just say that I don't think hacktivism is, is going to play down, but play, a, a, you know, the biggest role in, in bringing down Putin's operation. But they 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 can distract Russian IT operators from from being you know, busy responding to these DDoS attacks, these defacement attacks uh, and other sort of distractions. Um, and ultimately make it difficult for those in Russia who are aligned to the regime, um, but, you know, might be disconnected from the realities of what's happening. Um, you know, it, it might raise awareness within those people about, you know, what what they're supporting ultimately. Um, but like we were discussing earlier, it does potentially have the, the counter effect of pushing people towards the regime if, you know, it, it, it kind of 
um, frustrates them in that they can't access these services or you know things that they they'd like to to get forward and engage with you know aren't being able to to be used. Um, but I guess that's the risk that anonymous and similar groups have uh, have got to tread. Really, uh, Stefano, any thoughts on? you know, hacktivism or anonymous and their role in the conflict? Yeah, I was just going to say uh, that, yeah, it, it's interesting to see like these groups coming back, you know, every now and then uh, during like these big like geopolitical events or like sporting events and stuff. Like it's interesting from like a researcher point of view. And yeah, I was thinking about the fact like the attacks that we've seen in the past week of, you know, hacking into Russian streaming services and like displaying images of the conflict or pro-Ukrainian songs and this stuff. And yeah, like as you, as you were mentioning, like it can have two different effects. Like on one side, you can get you can feel attacked from like a foreign power or like from a foreign group anyway. And and therefore like running closer to your to your homeland or on the other hand you can feel like this stuff is really you know it's difficult like at the end of the day as you as we were saying before as well going in the streets and protesting against the russian state it's not the easiest thing you can do on a sunday morning of course uh, it's not the it's not a riskless activity so like even seeing those images like puts people like in a really difficult position you know it's it's really difficult to 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 judge like what the ultimate effect of these attacks will be and it's also interesting to see to to think about the fact that anonymous like is alleged like a stateless group with people from all over the world so they don't have responsibility into what can happen later you know it's not like a state driving operations and then taking a sort of accountability for what happens later uh they don't have that so it's it's a dangerous game i think yeah i was just going to say they hacktivism may unknowingly hinder planned intelligence operations as well so an article i was reading last week was was quite keen to point this out that you know if an intelligence agency has you know, access or infiltrated an, org uh, an organization with the intention of kind of staying under the radar, gathering information, you know, hacktivists attacking the same organization might set off alarms or otherwise, you know, cause that intelligence agency to lose its access. So I think that's a really good point to raise around, you know, not being aware of the full consequences of their actions. Rory, any, any final thoughts from you on this one? I just, yeah, I just echo what you guys have said, really. It's important to, to remember as well that the primary goal of these activists right now, I think, is exposure, is to expose Russian civilians to what's going on, uh, to, you know, to what's really actually happening in Ukraine. <clears throat> and there's a danger, as you guys have said, of that spinning out of control or, you know, maybe activist operations becoming slightly more malicious or disruptive, which is a risk. And then, you know, that could incite more reactions and, you know, may do more harm than good. So it's, it's a risk, uh, but it to take a step back and look at it you know as an analyst it's fascinating to see how easily you can crowdsource activism and i think we're seeing something now that we haven't yet seen in terms of scale you're absolutely right crowdsource activism that is something that you know we can see in uh, future conflicts i'm sure you know both sides you know if it, if, if it is a particularly um you know controversial conflict or otherwise um something that draws a lot of activism on both sides yeah for sure um thank you both for your contributions today uh really interesting discussion um dependent on developments in the coming days you'll likely hear from us again on friday with our regular shadow talk episode 
And once again, I'd like to reiterate our thoughts go out to everybody affected by the ongoing conflict. Um, I, I sound like a bit of a broken record here, but we really do hope for a peaceful resolution. Um, but thank you all for tuning in this week and we'll see you soon. Goodbye. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye.